Let me begin this message by saying that uh, everyone has a favorite uh, season they love. Some love uh, summer because the ocean is warm and the waves seem to be dancing to the music of violins coming from heaven, so they embrace the waves and dance with them. Others like the fall because the leaves on the tree change and look like a tapestry of many colors just as their lives as time passes. Still others love the winter with all the mountains covered with a beautiful white snow, enticing one to go to the mountaintop and glide down to the bottom as the eagle would. But as for me, I love spring. And let me tell you why. Because it was Sunday on a spring day when all the flowers and fruit trees begin to bud. It was beginning of the week of the Passover when on Friday they slaughter the lambs as a sacrifice in the city of Jerusalem. That spring day, Jesus starts riding on a young darky, donkey toward Jerusalem. On that spring day, there were two processions entering Jerusalem in the year 30. It was the most sacred week of the Jewish year. One procession was that of peasants. Jesus and his 12 disciples, what today we would call victory outreach, los vatos y las vatas and the gang. The other procession was an imperial procession. Pontius Pilate and all his troops ready for battle if necessary. From the east on that spring day, Jesus rode a donkey being cheered by his followers. His message was how the kingdom of God will defeat the kingdom of darkness. His followers came from the ghettos, the barrios of Galilee. His procession was that of children, women, and men. On the opposite side of the city of Jerusalem, from the west, came Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor of Judea and Samaria. He, uh, he entered Jerusalem at the head of a column, column of the imperial cavalry and soldiers. Jesus' procession proclaimed the kingdom of God. Pilate proclaimed the power of the Roman Empire. Pilate's military possession was, was a demonstration of both Roman imperial power and Roman imperial theology. In Jerusalem on that spring day, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of evil will collide. With a little imagination, you could hear the imperial possession arriving in the city. From far away, people could hear the wheels of chariots rolling on the earth. You could hear cavalry on horses. You could hear hoofs of horses pounding on the earth. From far away, you could hear foot soldiers. You could hear from far away armor pounding on leather. You could hear the marching of feet strapped with leather shoes. You could hear the creaking of leather, the clanging of bridles, and the beating of drums. And on that spring day, as the Roman imperial power got closer to Jerusalem, you could see cavalry on horses, foot soldiers, helmets, 
weapons, banners, golden eagles mounted on poles, sun glittering on metal and gold. To those Jews in Jerusalem, it was a sight of terror. According to Roman theology, the emperor was not only the ruler of Rome, but the son of God. Caesar was proclaimed as Lord and Savior who brought peace and prosperity on earth through crucifixion. And after Caesar's death, he was seen ascending into heaven to take his place among the gods. But on that spring day, we see Jesus also entering Jerusalem, not on a chariot on a horse, but on a donkey, the most humble of animals. Jesus' procession was a prearranged counter-procession. Jesus planned it in advance. So as Jesus rides his donkey down the Mount of Olives to Jerusalem, children start singing, women start dancing, men start shouting, Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. But five days later, on that spring day, when the flowers begin to bud, the lambs begin to die. And you could hear, all you could hear is the lambs being slaughtered. And a few hours later, the kingdom of evil and the kingdom of God collide. But the battle was silent. All noise had stopped. All you could hear was the sound of hammers pounding on nails and the cry of Jesus on that spring day. But then, suddenly, you hear another sound that cries, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. It is finished. The kingdom of darkness has begun to be defeated. But no one knows. But now we, could, we can see the flowers beginning to bloom. But wait a minute, because there is more noise. Suddenly we feel the earth moving. Then we feel the earth shaking. Then we feel thunder in the sky. The earth begins to crack. The current temple rips open. And those that were dead in their graves begin to rise. Jesus has conquered the weapons of evil of darkness. Not with chariots and horses, but with love and forgiveness. Those are our weapons of our warfare. Now we proclaim that Jesus is risen. Jesus is alive. But let me finish by saying that as, that as Jesus ascended to heaven, Caesar and all his forces descended to hell. And that's why spring is my favorite season. Uh, that was just the introduction. <laughs> okay, uh, I named this... Uh, this uh, this message, uh, God on the Move, okay? When I read a book, I always begin at the beginning of the book, never at the end. But with the life of Jesus, I'm not going to begin at the beginning of his life, which is his birth. But I will begin at the end of his life here on earth. I will begin at his death. The reason I will begin at his death at the end of his life is because at the end many times throws a new light on the beginning concerning Jesus. We all know that the faith of the first Christians was centered in the death and resurrection of Jesus. 
as Peter and Paul proclaimed. The reason the New Testament was written was because of the experiences of the disciples and apostles that was uh, related to the death and resurrection of Jesus. Without the death and resurrection of Jesus, there would be no gospel. So we can say that in Jesus, we have a very special person for who the end is the beginning. By this I mean that the end of Jesus' death on the cross and Jesus rising from the dead was the beginning of the faith that was able to turn the world upside down as Acts 17, 6 states. And it is this faith that was born out of the death and resurrection of Jesus that we see vibrating in the book of Acts. A faith that we now see in our lives vibrating and gushing forth forth in all the slums, ghettos, and barrios, and cities of the world. A faith that is able to turn drug addicts, alcoholics into saints, and prostitutes into virgins. Because now we are a new creation. Also, now at the end of the ministry of Jesus, we can look back to the beginning of the life of Jesus and see him lying in a manger, attracting attention from a few humble shepherds. But now we can also look forward to the future, to the end of time, and see Jesus as the king of glory who will create a new heaven and a new earth. The end or the death of Jesus is his new beginning with the Father, with us, and with the whole creation who groans as a woman giving birth to her child, groaning to be free and enter also into that freedom that we now have. So this is a reason why his end, the death of Jesus, and where we, where we must begin. So let me begin by saying that the death of Jesus affected everyone, but each in a different way. Uh, but, each in, but in every case, there was doubt and there was hopelessness. First of all, there were those resistant fighters called the Zealots, who fought to overthrow the Roman government rule by force. And since Jesus was from Galilee, he must have had some contact with the Zealots, since it was in Galilee where the Zealot population was located. Galilee would be like Oakland in the 70s. Even one of Jesus' disciples is called Simon the Zealot in Luke 6:13 and Acts 1:13. So it is possible that the zealots, those resistant fighters, seen Jesus as a sympathizer for their cause. So it's possible that some zealots followed Jesus. And if they did, the death of Jesus for the zealots must have been a bitter disappointment as they seen Jesus hanging on the cross. Also, there was a crowd of followers who must have shared the political aspiration of the zealots these people were the ones that welcomed Jesus to Jerusalem as their king and expected Messiah. These were the people who shouted at the top of their lungs, Hosanna to the son of David, blessing on him who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the heavens. But a few days later, we hear another crowd shouting from the top of their voices and asking Pilate to crucify him, crucify him. To them, Jesus was not the Messiah. They met their expectations, like many of us today. 
And then there were the disciples of Jesus, who according to Luke 19.38, left the crowd in a song as Jesus entered Jerusalem in a cult. But when Jesus was led to the cross, the disciples fled, leaving their master to endure the final hours of agony alone. Jesus' disciples abandoned him. We see, we see that there was so much excitement in the air when Jesus entered Jerusalem that some of the Pharisees told Jesus to rebuke, to restrain his disciples. But Jesus tells them in Luke 19, 40, I tell you, if my disciples keep silent, the stones will cry out. Creation will shout. Can you imagine what the Pharisees must have thought? They must have said to each other, this man is insane. Stones don't speak. But we know that rocks do speak. Because according to Matthew 27, 51, at the moment of Jesus' death, the rocks did cry out as the earth shook and the rocks split open. Only the earth knew who Jesus was. Creation knew who Jesus was. Nature knows more than humans. The only one we see defending Jesus was Nicodemus in John 7:51. But at the end, it was a crowd full of hate, full of poison that won. So we see that from the very beginning, the disciples had to deal with the death of Jesus on the cross. Death affects our way of thinking. To those outside the Christian faith, to those who don't share the same faith that the Apostle Paul had when he said in Philippians 1.21, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. To them, death is a disruption of life. A disruption that cannot be reversed. Death is a contradiction and the opposite of life. Death conquers and destroys meaning. Death destroys the relationships that make life possible. Death puts an end to being human and being personal. Death causes people to rethink life because of the crisis that it brings. This is what the disciples seen and experienced when Jesus died. The relationship they had with Jesus was emptied of life and meaning. Death had conquered life, and for the disciples, there was no way of bringing Jesus back to life. Their hopes, dreams had died with Jesus. And we see that the death of Jesus was not an ordinary death. It was a disgraceful death on a horrible cross, an ugly cross, where the dogs could lick the blood of Jesus. The cross made a mockery of all that Jesus taught about goodness, about beauty, and about love. It made nonsense of his talk on life and eternal life. On the cross, Jesus looked just like another fool who had deceived himself. The death of Jesus put an end to the hope for the coming of God's kingdom on earth. As Luke 24, 1 says, it states, but we had hoped that he, Jesus, was the one to redeem Israel. And besides all this, it is now the third day since these things took place. Death had denied them hope. Death had left them hopeless. Let me 
uh, take the death of Jesus a little further by saying that the death of Jesus was not merely the death of a private person like you and I. Because to the disappointment of many, his death was that of an expected Messiah and an expected Christ. Who would save them from the bondage of Rome, Rome's rule, like Moses did from Egypt? The death of Jesus was more than just the life of an individual person that was destroyed. It would be similar to the death of Martin Luther King Jr. Because what was at stake in the life of Jesus was also the life of Israel that had never given up of a political messiah from the house of David, as the Old Testament prophesied. To many in Israel, Jesus was a hopeful candidate as a Messiah since he taught them as one who had authority and not like their scribes. Like it says in Matthew 7, 29. Who else would have been a, uh, uh, their liberator but the one who would dare to say, challenge here at the king saying, go tell that fox. Listen, today and tomorrow and the next day, I will be casting out demons and working cures. And on the third day, I reach my goal. Because Jesus was their expected Messiah, the death of Jesus was a nightmare for many, a nightmare one woke up trying to forget. But once again, God seemed to be making fools of Israel. God was not playing their game. Israel could not see beyond their selfish goal for their nation. Israel could not see the true meaning brought about by the death of Jesus. Many times we can't see beyond our selfish goals. To many Jews, the death of Jesus was a tragedy. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.25, Christ nailed to the cross is a stumbling block to the Jews. Many times a financial crisis, sickness, death becomes a stumbling block to our faith. We see that even Peter Jesus' most trusted disciple didn't understand and stumbled when Jesus said that he must die in Matthew 16, 23, 23. We also see that through the painful cross, God declared that Jesus Christ was not the expected Messiah of the Jewish people. The cross declared that God would not have anything to do with a Messiah that would only pay attention to one nation such as Israel because the death of Jesus was for all nations. Therefore, on the cross, Jesus became uprooted from his own race, his own nation, and his own religion. All his disciples left them and disassociated themselves from them since Jesus failed their expectations, just like many of us. At the end, Jesus was abandoned as a Messiah who betrayed the national cause and who did not live up to the national expectation. But the uprootedness of Jesus went even further. Jesus was also seen by many as uprooted and abandoned by God. To Jews, God abandoning Jesus on the cross, God made it known that Jesus was not the Messiah they had hoped for. The cross became the death blow to any hopeful thought that might be lingering about Jesus as a possible national leader. It even appeared that God abandoned Jesus. 
In Matthew 27, 46, Jesus was forsaken both by God and his own people. Jesus was left alone. And it was by being abandoned by God and his people that Jesus became the Messiah, the Savior of all people, whether Jews, Greeks, Hindus, Buddhas, Muslims, dope addicts, prostitutes, alcoholics, and gays. The death of Jesus goes beyond every boundary we try to contain Jesus in. Many times we try to contain uh, Jesus to our own way of thinking. Also, we read that when Jesus died, some powerful signs happened. And we have to try to understand what these signs mean. First of all, what occurred or what happened when Jesus died was that from midday a darkness fell over the face of the land, which lasts until three hours in the afternoon. And as we all experience darkness, it's associated with fear. In darkness, there is a possibility of danger. When we are caught in darkness, we could become panicky, searching for the light switch in order to overcome that darkness. Darkness is scary because there is so much unknown in darkness. Our capacity or ability to sense, to see, or to discern, or perceive becomes severely restricted. We can say that we find ourselves at the mercy of darkness. And it was this kind of darkness that fell over the land of Egypt for three days, as Exodus 10, 21, 23 says. In this passage in Exodus, it even says that the Egyptians did not see one another nor rise up from their place for three days. To the Egyptians, darkness was associated with God's judgment. They were afraid. But the darkness that fell upon the whole land that day when Jesus died was something entirely different. It was different because a disruption was about to take place involving not only Jerusalem but the whole earth. Jesus' death was going to affect the whole earth. And we see that even though it was dark that Friday day, that darkness could not provide cover for the disciples that deserted Jesus. This darkness was going to expose their innermost fears, like it did me. The darkness that took place that day was neither a darkness that could protect the disciples of Jesus, nor a darkness of God's judgments, as in the land of Egypt, or those who crucified Jesus. That darkness that took place that Friday day was a sign from which a new light would shine. A new day would break, and a new experience of God's saving grace would become possible. Out of darkness will come forth treasures, as the prophecy says. We see that for us, when there is darkness, work production stops. But we read that in the beginning of creation in Genesis 1, when darkness covered the face of the earth, God was working in darkness, bringing his creation out of darkness. And it was in that darkness that God gave birth to the mystery of darkness becoming something, of emptiness growing into fullness and chaos submitting it to creation. When chaos comes into our lives, we submit it to God, that God may transform it. In Genesis, as well as in Calvary, 
God's purpose in creation takes place while the whole universe is covered in utter darkness. God works in darkness when we can't. When the death of Jesus took place, the whole land was covered with darkness. That darkness that took place that Friday day ended the chapter of an expected Messiah or Christ for Israel. But Israel and the disciples of Jesus didn't know that a totally different Christ was about to come forth from this darkness that would open up new chapters of God's saving grace in history. Jesus came forth out of darkness as we also did. That darkness that covered the whole earth for three long days separated the new chapter from the old chapter. This new chapter would introduce the story in which other nations other than Israel are also in God's saving purpose. All now are welcome. We see that in that darkness, a new kind of creation was taking place, a new kind of creation that would free God's salvation from Jewish bondage and set free God's saving power to the whole world, to every nation on earth. We can't say that this darkness can be described as labor pains before the dawn of birth. God was in labor, giving birth to a new day in darkness, just like a mother giving birth. We can't even say that in that darkness, the cross stood as a symbol and reality that God was in labor. The cross was God laboring in pain and in hope, creating something new. And let me say that the cross embraces all the suffering and all the desires of every human being since the beginning of time. Now our suffering is in hope. Now our deepest desires are fulfilled. We also read in Matthew and Mark that the silence of darkness was broken as Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it was in this cry, in this darkness, that the Jewish people and the world knew that Jesus was not the political Messiah or the Christ of the Jewish people. As Jesus hung on the cross, the Jewish people knew and Romans knew that Jesus was not going to be a second Moses leading his people out of the hand of Rome, their oppressor. There was not going to be a second Exodus to be celebrated with singing and dancing as in the exodus from Egypt. Instead, Jesus is our expected Messiah must die, that a new beginning may appear. Let me emphasize that the cross was instituted, established for the execution of political offenders by the Roman Empire or government. So when Jesus was crucified, this put an end once and for all to any illusion or false idea about Jesus as a national Jewish Messiah. We could even say that the cross was God's verdict on the Jewish nation that was obsessed with the idea that to them alone belonged the expected Christ. The Messiah or the Christ that God would send belonged to every nation on earth. The false dream that the Jewish people held on to, that to them and them alone belonged the Messiah, contradicted God's purpose of salvation for all humanity. Let me add that on the cross, 
God spoke with a loud voice, saying that even though the Jewish people had a special purpose in placing God's salvation, all those other nations who were unaware of God's saving purpose among them also have a special place in God's purpose of salvation. God's salvation goes to all. On the cross, God's salvation went beyond the borders of the Jewish nation. God's salvation even went to those Roman and Greek pagans who believe in other gods. God's salvation even went to those Romans and Greek prostitutes who sold their pleasures to satisfy their gods. God's salvation went into those Roman palaces and opened the hearts of those under the rule of Caesar. It also went into those dark, dark alleys of Rome and transformed those hustlers, beggars, and prostitutes. The gospel was on the move. And one day that gospel moved from the cross to New York and transformed a gangbanger and a heroin addict that would flood the world with the gospel as the Apostle Paul did. But it didn't stop there. Because one dark day, it moved to Oaktown and brought light to one lost girl and made her a prophetic voice to the heart of the bay. But again, it didn't stop there. Because one day it moved to Hayward to another beautiful woman who had also been abused by a man who now is a testimony and testifies to the healing power of Jesus in her life and how healing and how healing can come to every woman who has been abused and taken advantage by man. And in case you know, don't know who I'm speaking about, it's my wife. So we see that when Jesus died, he was abandoned not only by his own people, but also by God. There were no words of comfort from his father, only silence. But in contrast to the deep silence and complete darkness, Matthew 27, 51 says that there was an earthquake that shook the earth. The earth shook with the agony of Jesus' death. It could not keep silent. The earth could not contain the oppressive silence surrounding the cross. So it mourned and it quaked. It shook and it cried out. Let me add, with something else that took place that Friday day. It says that in Mark 15, 38, that the curtain of the temple was torn from top to bottom. What did this sign symbolize? What did it mean? Let me first say that there was two curtains. The first curtain, which is the outer curtain, separated the sanctuary from the outer court where the public and the pagans were allowed to assemble. Pagans could see this outer curtain. The second curtain, or inner uh, curtain, separated the holy or sanctuary from the holy of holies, where only the high priest was allowed. Only the priest could see the inner court curtain. The Gospels do not say what curtain was torn. But I agree with those that the curtain that was torn was the outer curtain, not the inner curtain. The curtain that was in view to, to the public and to pagans. It would be a public sign like the darkness that covered the earth and the earthquake that shook the earth. The outer curtain can be seen by all. Because if the inner curtain 
would have been torn, it would have been visible only to a few priests and would have been concealed from the public and from pagans. A cover-up could have taken place. But God wanted everyone to see that the curtain that had been torn from top to bottom, the curtain was a symbol which stood as a barrier which kept pagans out from Jewish religion. It separated the Gentiles from Jews or us from God. The curtain that was torn meant that worship not only uh, belonged for the Jews, but for all people. But why did the temple need such a curtain? I will say that the curtain protected and sheltered the mystery and secret of a God that could not be shared with outsiders. It separated the holy God from unholy pagans. This secret had to be hidden from the eye of ungodly, wicked, and profane people. It had to be guarded from unworthy people such as women, children, and pagans who strained their neck in vain for a glimpse of the mystery to which they had no access to. As a heroin addict, I thought I had no access to God, like many of you. The curtain in the temple had to be heavy enough to resist the penetration of the curious eye. It had to be thick enough to discourage the intrusion of a heart desiring to feel God's presence. It had to be strong enough to withstand, to resist the cries and shouts of those gripped by fear, by frustration, and by uncertainty, like we were. But we read that the curtain was torn in two pieces. The tear was complete and final. It could not be repaired. It had to be left turned apart. This curtain had resisted many assaults, but the time for this curtain had ran its course. It had withstood everything in the course of time and its long history. But one thing that it had failed to withstand, and that was the death of Jesus. At the death of Jesus, the curtain was torn from top to bottom. The death of Jesus brings God's close to the world as close as God can be. It makes God's presence in us real as God can be. The death of Jesus is the fulfillment of Emmanuel, God with us. God with all humanity, with all of his creation, God with all nations, and with all people is the meaning of the word become flesh. The Torah cord made an end to a God wrapped in a mass of mystery, hid in the darkness of the holy place. A mysterious God gives, gives no access to children, women, prostitutes, drug addicts, and alcoholics. Now that torn curtain is a symbol of hope for all who had waited desperately in the outer court like us for such a long time for God's salvation. Also, this is a warning to us and to every church who seeks to turn God into a privileged and private possession. Because when the curtain was torn open, many had discovered to their dread that the most sacred place believed to be filled with the presence of God was empty. God was not in the temple. Instead, God was out there in an open place on a hill 
where the cross was standing. Jesus is in the slums, alleys of hopelessness. The death of Jesus is a judgment not only on the sin of the world, but on every church that hides God from people by putting up barriers between the saved and unsaved, between the godly and ungodly, between the gay and straight. The death of Jesus turns every religion, church, inside out. It deals a blow to those who want to hold God captive to their rigid theological thinking. When we hold on too tight to our theology, we will miss God's presence like the Pharisees did. Also, Christianity many times underestimates the power of God. Many times I underestimate the power of God, but not my wife. She believes she could raise people from the dead. She believes she could pray people to have tattoos and those tattoos would disappear. <laughs> it fails. It fails to realize that it cannot set limits on God and what God does. What we do many times is take the sum of our faith or the totality of our faith for the totality of God. In other words, we make God equal with our faith. We lock God in our belief system, how we believe, like the Pharisees did. The religious leaders of Jesus' day believed that the death of Jesus would make an end to the God of Jesus, who was more interested in children, prostitutes, women, and pagans, pagans than those holy believers inside the temple. They did not take into consideration a God who would tear apart their curtain, who would tear apart their belief system and take sides with Jesus, with prostitutes, with lepers, with beggars, with alcoholics, and with drug addicts. God takes sides with the ungodly like us. And let me say that this God in Jesus is no new God because the God in Jesus has always been and will always be the God who stands and takes sides with those who suffer no matter who they are and where they are from. Jesus is there in the slums, in the rubbles, saving with bloody hands. And let me finish with this. God is a God who moves. And God moves freely in and out any nation. God can not only move into temples, palaces, into the White House where popes, kings, and presidents live, God can also move into those slums of the world and touch the hearts of children, touch the hearts of prostitutes, touch the hearts of dope addicts, touch the hearts of those who only know pain, poverty, and hunger. God is a God on the move who tears away every boundary or barrier that tries to contain him or put a curtain on him. That's what God did that Friday on the cross. God moves out of the holy of holy and makes us present fully known to all people in the outer court like us. What we see on that Friday exposed hill that Friday was a God who is capable of moving freely with his creation in the slums, alleys of drug addiction and prostitution. That's where Jesus moves. That's why we can never lose sight of the death of Jesus on the cross because it was in the death of Jesus 
that the curtain of the temple was torn from top to bottom and the floodgate that, God, that kept God from overflowing into every slum and city was forced open. Now drug addicts, prostitutes can experience God's presence. And we read that as Jesus died, those waters of life touched the heart of a pagan Roman soldier as he was moved to confess, truly, this was a son of God. In making this confession, the pagan soldier was already pointing beyond the cross to the resurrection, where life began. That's why the singing must never stop. The shouting must never stop. The dancing must never stop because Jesus is leading us in with dancing into the promised land like Marion did and other women will do. Uh, with this, I could have Pastor come up and finish off.